Section 58 of Mince Pie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mince Pie by Christopher Morley. Section 58. It is a weakness of mine, not a sinful one, I hope, that whenever I see anyone reading a book in public, I am agog to find out what it is. Crossing over to Camden this morning, a young woman on the ferry was absorbed in a volume, and I couldn't resist peeping over her shoulder. It was Hans Brinker. On the same boat were several schoolboys, carrying copies of Meyer's History of Greece. Quaint, isn't it, how our schools keep up the same old bunk? What earthly use will a smattering of Greek history be to those boys? Surely to our citizens of the coming generation, the battles of the Marne will be more important than the scuffle at Salamis. My errand in Camden was to visit the house on Mickle Street, where Walt Whitman lived his last years. It is now occupied by Mrs. Thomas Skymer, a friendly Italian woman, and her family. Mrs. Skymer graciously allowed me to go through the downstairs rooms. I don't suppose any literary shrine on earth is of more humble and disregarded aspect than Mickle Street. It is a little cobbled byway, grimed with drifting smoke from the railway yards, littered with wind-blown papers, and lined with small wooden and brick houses, suited almost to blackness. It is curious to think as one walks along that bumpy brick pavement that many pilgrims from afar have looked forward to visiting Mickle Street as one of the world's most significant altars. As Chesterton once wrote, we have not yet begun to get to the beginning of Whitman. But the wayfarer of today will find Mickle Street far from impressive. The little house, a two-story frame cottage painted dark brown, is numbered 330. In Whitman's day it was 328. On the pavement in front stands a white marble stepping block with the carved initials W.W., given to the poet, I dare say, by the same friends who bought him a horse and carriage. A small sign in English and Italian says, Thomas A. Skymer, automobiles to hire on occasions. It was with something of a thrill that I entered the little front parlor where Walt used to sit, surrounded by his litter of papers and holding forth to faithful listeners. One may safely say that his was a happy old age, for there were those who never jibbed at protracted audience. A description of that room as it was in the last days of Whitman's life may not be uninteresting. I quote from the article published by the Philadelphia Press of March 27, 1892, the day after the poet's death. Below the window sill, a four-inch pine shelf is swung, on which rests a bottle of ink, two or three pens, and a much-rubbed spectacle case. The shelf, I am sorry to say, is no longer there. The table, between which and the wall is the poet's rocker, covered with a worsted afghan, presented to him one Christmas by a bevy of college girls who admired his work, is so thickly piled with books and magazines, letters, and the raffle of a literary desk, that there is scarcely an inch of room upon which he may rest his papers as he writes. A volume of Shakespeare lies on top of a heaping full waste-basket that was once used to bring peaches to market, 
and an ancient copy of Worcester's Dictionary shares places in an adjacent chair with the poet's old and familiar soft gray hat, a newly darned blue woolen sock, and a shoe-blacking brush. There is a paste bottle and brush on the table, and a pair of scissors much used by the poet, who writes for the most part on small bits of paper and parts of old envelopes, and pastes them together in patchwork fashion. In spite of a careful examination, I could find nothing in the parlor at all reminiscent of Whitman's tenancy, except the hole for the stovepipe under the mantel. One of Mrs. Skymer's small boys told me that he died in that room. Evidently, small Louis Skymer didn't in the least know who he was, but realized that his home was in some vague way connected with a mysterious person whose memory occasionally attracts inquirers to the house. Behind the parlor is a dark little bedroom, and then the kitchen. In a corner of the backyard is a curious thing, a large stone or terracotta bust of a bearded man, very much like Whitman himself, but the face is battered and the nose broken, so it would be hard to assert this definitely. One of the boys told me that it was in the yard when they moved in a year or so ago, the house is a little dark, standing between two taller brick neighbors. At the head of the stairs I noticed a window with colored panes, which lets in spots of red, blue, and yellow light. I imagine that this patch of vivid color was a keen satisfaction to Walt's acute senses. Such is the simple cottage that one associates with America's literary declaration of independence. The other Whitman shrine in Camden is the tomb in Harley Cemetery, reached by the Haddonfield Trolley. Dr. Oberholzer, in his Literary History of Philadelphia, calls it tawdry, to which I fear I must demur. Built into a quiet hillside in that beautiful cemetery of enormous slabs of rough-hewn granite, with a vast stone door standing symbolically ajar, it seemed to me grotesque, but greatly impressive. It is a weird pagan cramlick, with a huge triangular boulder above the door bearing only the words Walt Whitman. Palms and rubber plants grow in pots on the little curved path leading up to the tomb. Above it is an uncombed hillside and trees flickering in the air. At this tomb, designed, it is said by Whitman himself, was held that remarkable funeral ceremony on March 30th, 1892 when a circus tent was not large enough to roof the crowd, and peanut vendors did business on the outskirts of the gathering. Perhaps it is not amiss to recall what Bob Ingersoll said on that occasion. He walked among verbal varnishers and veneerers, among literary milliners and tailors, with the unconscious dignity of an antique god. He was the poet of that divine democracy that gives equal rights to all the sons and daughters of men. He uttered the great American voice. And though one finds in the words of the naive Ingersoll the squeaking timber of the soapbox, yet even a soapbox does lift a man a few inches above the level of the clay. Well, the Whitman battle is not over yet, nor ever will be, though neither Philadelphia nor Camden has recognized 330 Mickle Street as one of the authentic shrines of our history. Lord, how trimly dyed it would be if it were in New England. 
Camden has made a certain amend in putting Walt into the gay mosaic that adorns the portico of the new public library in Cooper Park. There, absurdly represented in an austere black cassock, he stands in the following frieze of great figures Dante, Whitman, Molaire, Gutenberg, Tyndall, Washington, Penn, Columbus, Moses, Raphael, Michelangelo, Shakespeare, Longfellow, and Palestrina. I believe that there was some rumpus as to whether Walt should be included, but anyway, there he is. You will make a great mistake if you don't ramble over to Camden some day and fleet the golden hours in an observant stroll. Himself the prince of loafers, Walt taught the town to loaf. When they built the new post office over there, they put round it a ledge for philosophic lounging, one of the most delightful architectural features I have ever seen. And on Third Street, just around the corner from 330 Mickle Street, is the oddest plumber's shop in the world. Mr. George F. Hammond, a Civil War veteran who knew Whitman and also Lincoln, came to Camden in 69. In 1888, he determined to build a shop that would be different from anything on earth and well he succeeded perhaps it is symbolic of the shy and harassed soul of the plumber fleeing from the unreasonable demands of his customers for it is a kind of gothic fortress leaded windows gargoyles masculine medusa heads a sally port loopholes and a little spire i stopped in to talk to mr hammond and he greeted me graciously. He says that people have come all the way from California to see his shop, and I can believe it. It is the work of a delightful and original spirit who does not care to live in a demure hutch like all the rest of us, and has really had some fun out of his whimsical little castle. He says he would rather live in Camden than in Philadelphia, and I dare say he's right. End of section 58